namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sangang namasami So today we had an Anagarika, someone taking Anagarika precepts, Anagarika commitment, <coughs> homeless, Anagarika, one who has no home, although it's a rather pleasant monastery to live in. <laughs> Not bad. <coughs> but it's uh, just a phrase, sometimes it's called the Brahmacharya, the uh, spiritual life, charya, to conduct or to live Brahma in a level of the spirit. <clears throat> so these can also can be called celibacy, but that really is just uh, one aspect of it. Celibacy is really what you're kind of putting, defining what you're putting aside. Brahma charya helps to define what you're entering into. The Brahma, Brahma, the boundless the uh, non-sensual, the spiritual, the domain of the inner heart, this, this quality, boundless um, quality of mind. So this is something we should all cultivate, whether we're householders, renunciants or whatever, this quality of the, the Brahma mind, the wholesome mind, the beautiful mind, boundless mind, <coughs> living it out. Because it's not really about, not even for an aim, but just because of the, the beauty of it. And one of the uh, qualities that uh, is quite uh, noticeable is that uh, the brahmacharya, the spiritual life well lived, is just uh, think, is just beautiful. You know, it's, uh, it's, it has certain composure, clarity, uh, calmness. Um, Sense faculties are clear and restrained. They're not frazzled, burnt out, hung over, agitated. So there's this quality to it. The quality of the spiritual training imbues the sense faculties with a sense of uh, calmness and well-being and ease. That's the aim of it. So it's just beautiful. And it attracts. It attracts us. So <clears throat> one of the early... Um, Sangha would be these uh, early arahants, noble ones, walking. And then people would just be attracted to them because they had such a beautiful demeanor. And, uh, and a similar thing happens today. You know, people are just attracted to the quality of calmness, graciousness, ease, composure, relax, relaxed and yet bright. The brahmacharya. 
Now, certainly, living the the aim of living a renunciate life is to is to purely focus on that quality, you know, developing this inner quality of composure and clarity. But it isn't is not purely a lifestyle. It's really a a, a training that we all want to encourage. And sangha life helps to give one the, the requisites and the support for that. It's enormously supportive for that. But people don't always get it. Um, you'll get angry, conceited, hard, moralizing, righteous, lazy, you know, in, in, sang- in monastic life. You know, so it's not a guarantee. <laughs> so it's not, so you don't just get dropped into it and it happens. You've got to work on it. So we all have to do that work. <clears throat> it really comes down to understanding the wholesome, getting a feeling for the wholesome, dwelling in what is wholesome. And the understanding of the Buddhist understanding that mind or consciousness is a continual stream. It's not an entity or thing, but a continual stream, like a dripping tap, or even quicker than that, just something that's blipping, dripping moment by moment, moment consciousness is, is just this sense of a bare uh, on one level it's just a bare knowing the ability to be conscious to be conscious but it's always accompanied by a whole load of other factors and uh, some, most of these factors are what are called sankara or um, activities uh, programs, formations mental formations some and uh, so this is what's continually encasing on the sheath around this quality of awareness. So we can do, uh, there can be a consciousness which is, you know, pushy, which has got a push to it, or greed infused, or jealousy. It's got a jealous conscious, a fault finding consciousness. We see things with a fault finding mind. We listen with a critical ear, or we listen with a sympathetic ear. Obviously, the ears don't change, but you're talking about the qu- what factors are accompanying the moment of consciousness, in, the flow of consciousness at any given moment. And the aim of, of our uh, contemplative life is just to keep keep attentive to that, how the flow is operating now, what's coming along with this quality of awareness. Is it inspired, enthusiastic? Is it composed? Is it equanimous? Is it jealous? Is it depressed? What's it doing? And to keep very aware of that and see this is the most important thing. This is how the world is created. Our subjective world, our reality is created. We have a, when we're depressed, we see all the depressing things. When we are uh, jealous, we see all the things that other people have got that we don't have. When we're feeling miserable or bored we saw the things that make us annoyed and so forth it's you know, our consciousness is the the factors of consciousness are the things that create the world it's created formed for us through these sankara so really the direct practice is just coming into the mind or into the conscious stream we call this meditation Coming to the streets, an introspection, you might say, just coming into the flow of the of the conscious awareness at any given moment, what's happening, yeah, and trying to uh, clarify that 
And the, the nice thing is that when some of these uh, contemplatives started to really contemplate this stream, then they reckoned there were all kinds of factors happening, but basically, of all the potentials there are, there are more potentials for wholesome than there are for unwholesome. Yeah. So there are certain unwholesome states. Any unwholesome state is, is only accompanied by four factors. There are only four qualities that accompany that. And they always accompany any unwholesome state. But the wholesome states are in, I mean, like... Um, 19 19 to 4 it's not bad for, that's a football score <laughs> so <laughs> the four unwholesome ones that accompany the flow of uh, uh, consciousness so when consciousness is unwholesome it's, all, it's always accompanied by basically delusion uh, it's not not confused, distracted, holding some wrong attitude or another wrong view, prejudiced, biased, uh, bigoted, influenced. We're deluded. We're caught up with something. We're not seeing things clearly. And this is the most difficult one to shift, because because delusion, you don't know you're deluded. You know, <laughs> you don't know it. You may you may be conscious. You may recognise you're angry or you're greedy, but you don't recognise you're deluded. Because otherwise you wouldn't be deluded. <laughs> so it's one of those catch-22s, isn't it? So this is considered, this is always present in unwholesome states. You don't really know that you're, even the state of mind is unwholesome. Other factors that are present are very significant. Um, one is restlessness. One is kind of not settled. So you may notice that. Mine is not settled, not it's agitated. When we say unwholesome, it's not kind of blaming, it's just recognizing. Yeah. The quality of recognition is most important, just to get the clarity to without adding more judgments, blame, irritation, despair, because that's adding more stuff to it. You just want to know. So that is really the aim of, of clearing through delusion, recognizing one feels slightly unsettled, restless. Now, that's not a moral fault, is it, restlessness? But you can say this isn't a, a wholesome state. In the world. It's not a state that you really can enjoy, dwell in, feel completed by, feel fulfilled by. So wholesome and unwholesome refer not just to ethical, but you might say also to energetic states. Is your mind relaxed and happy? If it's not, then we call this the unwholesome. Yeah, not not whole. It's not fulfilled. It's something lacking. Another, the other two very important factors are um, ahiriko and anotapa, and these two ahiriko means one has no real sense of um, self-respect. And an and ultimate means you don't have really a sense of respect for others. Yeah. So this can often happen when you're in a negative state, you don't really respect yourself. You know, oh, idiot, stupid, waste of time, I've messed it up, I've bungled, I've failed, flop, you know. Now, of course, we can all consider things we didn't do correctly. And yet right now, 
the quality of hiri is meaning you have a sense of wanting to to of, of really sensing that you're inherently there's a value there and at that moment something caught you out and you really want to avoid that that getting caught out that, that losing it that missing it that making a mistake you that's what hiri is it means the sense of conscience, like I don't want to keep, I don't want to keep making mistakes. Now, if we go into self, um, you know, punishment, then we're not really recognize that quality of hearing isn't there because instead of saying I don't want to, I want to be pure, I want to rise up to the the good, we're saying you are an idiot. <laughs> yeah. You can't do both at the same time. So when you have the quality of hearing, you say, oh, I wish to rise up to the good, and I see that, that I've made a mistake with, oh, that, I got caught there. Oh, well, that's how it was. Now I know. Good. Now I can move on. Yeah? So the Buddha said, you know, when you see a transgression in yourself, this is considered a great improvement to see a transgression, because that which sees a transgression is not deluded, it's not caught up with aversion, it's not transgressing. At that moment, it's bright. It's, oh, that, there's a mistake. Oh, that's what it was. Good. Now I've learned something. That's the quality of hearing. Very valuable. And we might summarize it as a sense of, of self-respect, meaning you respect yourself even with the mistakes, even with the errors, because you can sense the errors are really when you, you were caught, when you were deluded, when you were acting on impulse, when you were just casual, you weren't really aware. And now you see that. So, ah, oh, good, you're lifting up. So here is a very important... When it's lost, the sense of, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm stupid anyway. <laughs> then we lose, the, we keep lowering the bar. We don't have that quality of self-respect. And similarly, when we lose it, in it when we have that uh, sense of other people, oh, it doesn't really matter because she's dumb or she's an idiot or he's a fool or he's loud-mouthed or whatever, we lose that sense of, uh, may they be well. I mean, you know, this person's in trouble. This person's in a negative state. Uh, I don't want that to be that way. I want them to be, um, you know, to rise up. And also I respect their opinions about me. I respect their, their views. So we have that sense of everybody counts. Respecting others, respecting ourselves. Then we have, we're attentive, we're listening out. And this is a quality that, that uh, uh, counteracts the sense of uh, aversion to others, aversion to oneself. So, any unwholesome state, we lose that sense that there is something innately valuable and precious here that, that we have to sustain in ourselves, in others, in our relationships. We cheapen things. We cheapen life. We cheapen the human being. And a lot of the practice is really recognizing, you know, even people we don't agree with still... Okay, that's, that's their opinion, that's their view. I'm not going to just say, dismiss them and shut them up and say, well, you're stupid, you've got it wrong. Just, oh, well, that's your view, okay. You know, 
And it's uh, amazing how this, this sense of being able to be open and receptive to other people's views and opinions gives them the chance to see, to clear their own delusion. We realize that we're all subject to it and we don't know it. For a lot, if we can recognize that a good amount of the time we're speaking and acting with some degree of delusion. <laughs> you know, and that's not a condemnation, it's just that's, that's the fact, that's how it is. Uh, so how do we get clear of that? Do we get clear of that by somebody saying, you're a deluded, stupid idiot? Or do we get clear of that by saying, somebody saying, oh, that's it, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, uh, and you feel calm, you feel heard, you feel listened to, and suddenly you think, oh, that, oh, that opinion doesn't really matter. We come out of it. So just recognizing, you know, the, perhaps the most, two, these two very important factors here in Otipa are the factors that keep pointing inward to, to our own sense. To, it's the most, two most important introspective factors that you can always come in on. You can't always follow the breath, maybe. You can't always go to a refined mental state, but you can say, how am I? You know, can I, Is there something that I feel a sense of blame or shame about in myself? What's that? Oh, oh, I said that. I did that. I didn't do that. Oh, okay. So it causes us to come inward, you know, and to recognise the uh, transgressions, mistakes we've made, and also to recognise what we have, the, the beauty, the goodness that's there. It's very important. So being able to do this. Now, sometimes people don't even like to think about themselves because immediately so much self-judgment comes up. Or they get embroiled in a whole kind of story of this and that, and then they did this and I did that, and the memories and stuff comes up. Yeah. So what really helps in terms of that uh, introspection is the factor called sati or mindfulness, which is just take just bear this one in mind. Just hold that, just contemplate that. It's like deciding, selecting and deciding. And there are certain skills such as vitaka, vichara, directed mind, inquiring mind, that say, well, let's just, just stay with this and really contemplate what that's about. And so this, this and sati, or mindfulness, is one of the factors that support and generate the quality of hiri and otapa, the sense of conscience and concern, respect for oneself, respect for others. As we focus on something, we oh, that was not worthy of me, that was a mistake. Uh, put it aside. Put it aside. We see it as just a, a factor in the stream of mind rather than some permanent entity or self. Sati mindfulness is one of the uh, constant or universal wholesome factors. Whenever there's a wholesome state of mind, there's always sati, there's always mindfulness. So, this ability to to bear something in mind, to not be distracted, to not be 
thrown out, to not be agitated, but stay with something, that, that power to be composed and collected. Sati, bearing things in mind, staying on track, scrutinizing that factor that holds the lens of attention steady. Other factors that are important to, to, to acknowledge is that there's Hiri and Otapa, those two factors, they're there. There's also um, a sense of an absence of ill will, an absence of, of greed, an absence of ill will, and the quality of confidence. One feels assured, one feels steady, because the very sense of mindfulness and um, self-respect and respect for others has a steadying effect. So the mind starts to feel straight, steadied, you know, to the point when we experience something called, uh, the Pali word for it is Tatra Majatata, which means something like equanimity, evenness. Your mind feels steady, even. It's not bowed, it's not twisted, it's not leaning over, it's not biased. It's steady, it's level, it's uh, equanimous. So these are, these are the, some of the uh, wholesome factors that are present. Hmm. We begin to, as we practice, it starts with uh, this sense of uh, sati, mindfulness, self-respect, respect for others, then uh, freeing oneself, putting aside ill will, putting aside uh, craving, uh, sense desires, attachments, just putting it aside. We're looking at moments. You know. And the beauty of it is that Whenever these factors, the negative factors dissolve, you stay with that. You can feel the sense of the brightness of the mind, the relief of the mind, evenness. When the commentators focused on on the on the wholesome state of mind, they also recognized uh, something that is very uh, important, which is the, uh, the, the factors that specifically indicate that one's mind is free from delusion, moha, delusion. There's a certain, because as we recognize, you know, you can have a lot of clear ideas with delusion. You can believe in, in, Moon's out, made out of green cheese. You can believe in Santa Claus, and it'd be very clear. Uh, political views can be very clear. Religious views can be very clear. Totally intelligent. You've got it all sorted out, and it, but it's complete delusion. <laughs> you know, thinking mind can create an apparent reality on, on a deluded basis. So you can't really just believe in, in the, the thinking mind, and naturally. One's delusions can have a huge amount of emotional conviction in them. I am right, you know. Um, I am true, I am right, I am right person, you know. But what, uh, what becomes uh, clear when you meditate is the energy of the mind. The mind is uh, pushy, forceful, hard, uh, manipulative, where it's, you begin to contemplate just the energy there. And 
the, there is said to be something like um, 12, I think it's 12 factors or six, six paired factors that are present which deal directly with the, the feeling of mind, the, feet, the felt sense of it, uh, the felt sense of consciousness. And they're paired. They're paired, they refer to kaya, which means literally body, and chitta, which means something like heart. So when we say the, the body, we mean the sense of, um, you know, when you feel tense, that, so it's like you might say your nervous energy, whether you feel tense, whether you feel relaxed, whether you feel expansive, whether you feel cramped, it's that sense of the body, uh, kaya. Chitta is to do with, with the quality of heart that you feel. And the paired factors, the first pair are pasadi, which means that both the body and the mind feel calm, yeah, feel tranquil. There's no agitation, there's no tension in the body. You feel it feels calm. And you recognise righteousness never feels calm. It feels strong, it feels tight, it feels pushy, uh, but it doesn't feel calm. So this can't be right. This, is, this must be, there's an element of moha there. So as you can recognise whenever we get in our high horse, feeling how right we are, and how this is all that, and they're this, and they're that, and it shouldn't be this, and it's like that, and it's like you're feeling calm? <laughs> is your body calm? You know, your mind's like a rock <laughs> with conviction. Is, is that calm? Mm. So it's probably moha, probably delusion there. Another pair of factors are, are uh, lahuta, kayo lahuta, and chitta lahuta. Lahuta means uh, means light. It's buoyant. It's light. It's uh, mm, it's not heavy. It's not intense. Yeah. Does your body feel light? There's a certain lightness. Uh, another pair, muduta, which means it's pliable. When you say, is the body pliable? Does, it doesn't mean you're a kind of yoga expert, but there's a certain sense of ease, relaxation in the body, and a, a, a pliability of mind. You're adaptable. You know, you, well, this way, that way. You haven't got a fixed, rigid mind state. And your energy is also malleable. You're not driven. You're not on some kind of roll where you're just driven along and you can't, uh, you know, stop or check. You're malleable. You're pliable. You can go this way or that way. It's like being, um, you know, a good dancer. You can turn on the spot. You could this way or that way. Gymnast, you're flexible. Uh, so this, this really, these are important um, reference points because these are the reference points that um, indicate that the mind isn't weighed down with this cloud this in, of delusion. <coughs> these are more the factors you begin to experience more you're, you're in touch with samadhi, with the deepening of the mind beyond behind thought, you can recognise the energetic qualities that are there in the mind. Is it calm? Is it light? Is it malleable, pliable? Another couple of factors are: uh, is it uh, kamanyuta, which means um, well, it's 
capable of doing some work. It's not dull. It's not some spaced out state. It's not fixated. It's actually, you, you, could, you could use that. You know, it's rather like you have, um, like you take a, uh, uh, ore in a rock and you've smelted it and you've got the ore out like gold and you've started to melt it down. Now it's smooth and workable. You can make anything you like with it. And the Buddha used this image of the goldsmith saying as a result of their practice, their mind is rather like, a, like, like pure gold. You could shape necklaces, you could shape nose rings, you could shape whatever, any kind of anything you liked out of it. It's workable. It's, uh, you can put it to the task. It will, it will hold something. It won't just fall apart. You can apply it. Yeah. Is your energy like that? Or is, it, is your body energy and your mind energy ragged, uh, broken up, uh, flat, yeah. then, uh, or, or restless and agitated? So, and uh, proficient is another pair skilled as you, the mind has the body and the mind have a certain proficiency you know what to do it's rather like someone who is a um, skilled gymnast you know, they know how to or an engineer, or a farmer, or a gardener, they know how to make things work. And you've got that quality as confidence. The last pair are to do with um, upright. You don't, you're not fooling around, you're not playing games. It's not interested in that, it doesn't want to do that. The mind really likes and enjoys truthfulness. It feels steady. If there's nothing to say, you don't say anything. If there's something to say, you say it. <laughs> you know, instead of Nothing to say, you just keep babbling. Something to say, you can't, you can't say it. You know, there's something to do, you do it. There's nothing to do, you don't do it. It's, it's, uh, and it's concerned with being truthful, living your truth, saying your truth, walking your truth. It's called ujjakata, which means it's got this uju direct rightness, upright quality to it, which is not about moralizing. Or being righteous, it means just uh, this is the way I see it now. This feels right for me. This is my understanding is this much, just this now. That's what I know. I know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know. You know? So it's get a sense of no uh, manipulative, no um, conceit, no prevaricating, no no. Dressing it up is straight. So this is a very, these are very admirable qualities, and they're not just admirable; they also give you a sense of uh, of dignity and, and and clarity. So when the mind is endowed with all these, it doesn't matter what we're doing, because the stream of consciousness itself feels good. It feels like a treasure. It feels precious. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting, walking, speaking, acting, whatever you're doing, if you go in that way, then you really are living the wholesome. Now, it may seem like that's a lot (coughs) to bear in mind, 
but you can <coughs> recognize it really refers to um, <coughs> a sense of presence, a sense of uh, personal integrity. So we're not following uh, a, a view, something that's introduced, an idea, something that's introduced, something we've read somewhere, thought something, we're following the innate uh, wholesome qualities of mind. And they all rise simultaneously. That is, when you hit the wholesome, when you touch into it, then those qualities will become more manifest, become present for you. You start to feel straight, clear. Yeah. If you don't know, you know you don't know. And you're clear about that. You're okay with that. You're not fluff, flustered by that. Um, if you've forgotten something, you've made a mistake, you know you've made a mistake, you know you've forgotten something, that's that. You're clear. You're no longer making a uh, kind of a self out of it. Because the main problem for, for uh, beings is this moha, delusion factor. And the fundamental quality of delusion is it... it keeps trying to ascribe permanency to things that change, selfhood to things that are not self, and uh, completeness or satisfactoriness in things that are not that way. And generally what happens is we expect ourselves to be permanent, satisfied, effective, efficient, (laughs) all these things. And we think that's, that's what we should be. but that isn't what we should be what we should be is have a sense of virtue and clarity and integrity about the way that uh, what's arising in this present moment so it's not based upon performance in the external or worldly ways you get people who are have particular skills and intelligences, but it doesn't mean necessarily they're wholesome. You get people who don't have much intelligence or apparent intelligence or skills, but they can have a very wholesome mind state. And that, that's, so that's the important thing. And you begin to see that the, the Buddha Dharma transcends the worldly values. It gives us back to something that we can innately all have. It's not dependent upon age, it's not dependent upon gender, it's not dependent on education, social conditioning, anything like that. It's just dependent upon this uh, fundamental purity that we can that is that we can realise for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And where does it begin? <coughs> So in another set of teachings, the Buddha would say, well, it begins, we say it begins anywhere, with uh, generosity, and it begins with virtue. Because what both of these practices um, um, involve is a recognition of relationship to others. Generosity means I... See, there's some someone I want, like you know. I feel I would like to give things to, and I can do that. You know, it doesn't really matter what it is, but it's that sense of whether well, it's a teaching or um, material things or time or attention. It's a relationship of somebody who who I feel is worth giving things to, and that I have something that I have 
I can offer. So, in a way, this both respects the donor and respects the person who's given to. This is a kind of standard of Buddhist practice. This our culture here is a dharma culture, it's a generosity culture. We may think that that just really means, you know, come up with some donations, but it's not quite that. That's putting it very crudely, very simply. The whole of the teaching is a dana, a gener- uh, you know, a free will generosity. Um, the monastery is a, is an offering. Here we are. You know, it's not a, a teaching. Is not a job. It's not a career that you have to get good at, or it's your duty to do. It's just an act of dana. It's an act of just wanting to give something. And the the obligation for the summoners is really to live according to the training precepts and to practice the Dhamma. That's their obligation, that's purely it. They don't have an obligation to teach, to serve, to help, to look after sick people, to help visit the dying. They have no obligation to do that whatsoever. You know, in, in terms of monastic training you can sit on your own in a hut, that's, you know, in terms of training, that's fine. That's really okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no obligation to give anybody else anything whatsoever. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> what we find is that when you practice, you feel, well, I just, I like to sort of help out somehow. So, not because you have to, because you, well, you know, I feel like I'd like to help out. Good people, see somebody suffering, like do what I can to help out. And the whole of the Buddhist tradition rests upon this fact that as we start to come into clarity, into introspection, something that wants to give. I don't feel right if I'm not giving something you know, it's just a bit of advice or some company or a silent presence or, you know, let me tidy that up for you or, you know, I don't feel, don't feel complete it's based upon that because that, in a way, that sense of self and other in balance is one of the fundamental uh, ways in which the wholesome manifests to others as to myself, the sense of conscience and concern, you matter, I matter, I want to bring forth that which is good for myself, not mean, stingy, indifferent, doesn't feel good. What I like to, what I feel good with is generous, warm-hearted, open, kind, that feels good for me. And it's absolutely no obligation to do that. It just happens. (laughs) And this is the, the beauty of it, like, Think what what what's the organisation? How do who's who's the head of this organisation that set it all up? Is there some kind of plan whereby you decide? Well, in two thousand and nine, we'll send a division of monks over there to take over Iceland, and then we'll look after. We need to we need to bend a branch down to into Southeast Europe, the Greeks. What about going into North Africa? We're going to have a division over there sorting it all out, working it all out. How we can gradually infiltrate the world with Buddhism and we're all, we're all signed up we all read our books at night on how to do it how we're going to convert everyone to Buddha Dharma for the welfare of the true religion and who's organising it all 
There must be some organisation behind all this. And you look around here. So, there isn't one. There are sort of managements where you tidy little areas up, but there's no great mission. (laughs) But what there is, is the human heart. And as you get, as your mind starts to come introspectively, you think, well, I'd like to. Well, these people invited me to help out. Well, yeah, I could do something. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. Let's see that school group because they asked me to. That's how it happens. <laughs> it's like that. I say, well, who, who's this, who supports the monasteries? Is it some kind of, um, you know, big American philanthropist, or is it the Russian mafia? Or is it the Thai royalty? Who's who's running this show? Just people who wander in and plunk a load of vegetables on the table. That's what's running it. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Beats me. <laughs> but they said they wanted to do it. That's what runs it. So it's it's this you know manifestation of the dana principle, which isn't something you don't. You don't have to be generous because that's it wouldn't be dana. That's wages, that's taxation. That's not dana. Dana means I feel like doing it. That's why I do it because it feels good. It's the wholesome. I feel bright. I feel light. I feel less heavy. I don't feel so agitated. I feel and you start to see these wholesome factors line up around that, you know, around something like that. Sila morality. You know, who's checking up on all these monks and nuns to make sure they're behaving? There's a lot of spy cameras in their rooms checking out. So, oh, what's he reading? Uh-huh. Uh, what's she doing? She's munching peanuts in the evening and some kind of spy camera to make sure they're behaving themselves. Nope. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it? Who's, who's the law and order around here? Who's the sheriff? Must be the abbot. Going around continually snooping in on people, checking them out. Nope, I can't be bothered to do that. On my, I don't do that with my life. <laughs> and yet, how come is it every two weeks somebody says, "Oh, Jim, I think I uh, confessed that um, you know I I um, I looked at myself in the mirror with a kind of attitude of vanity. Uh, you know, I um, I didn't check that a sweet whether it had milk in it or not." You know, people are kind of going through refined levels of introspection to get exactly their standards right. They feel any degree of, of um, you know, ignorance or manipulativeness or vanity or conceit. It just doesn't taste right. What? Who does that? Who's judging? Heriotopus judging, <laughs> conscience and concern, self-respect, value for integrity. That's what's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you feel good with it. It's, the wholesome makes you feel good, so you do it. There's nobody else. And if you lose it, if you lose that, then really you're no longer a, a monk or a nun. It just doesn't matter whether you're wearing robes or not. You're not. It becomes obvious, and people smell it and see it, and they, they, they start to move away because you're not really. Living the life that attracts. You're not living the brahmacharya. You're not living the life which attracts that sense of, you know, spiritual attraction to that which is beautiful, that which is light, sustains us, that which we.
we value that which reminds us of the of the pure heart which we all somehow have a sense for so these two qualities you know and then from there you can see the one of the other you know great buddhist standards is kindness compassion so again this is the relational sense to others as myself kindness and compassion and morality are just two sides of the same thing so I don't want to you know, trivialise or abuse or belittle you because I have warm heartedness towards you I don't want to dwell upon your faults because uh, I don't want to you know, make you feel bad a sense of so a noble one is considered to be someone who you know, speaks sparingly of other people's faults doesn't delight in it, doesn't take relish in describing how stupid or defiled other people are, but if they have to say it, they say, "Well, yeah, he does sometimes make mistakes." You know, you keep it. Don't enjoy it. Uh, but if you're being straight, you have to say that. And so, the sense of, you know, the what is it that keeps a sangha a sangha? And what is it that keeps what's called the fourfold assembly, the lay men, the lay women, the monks, the nuns, the, why the Buddha felt this is what's going to keep this thing going on the planet. Not one individual, not one great teacher, but this bond. Because this bond itself is a manifestation of the wholesome a sense of conscience, concern, uh, morality, virtue, uh, being able to check each other, mindfulness. And when we live within that, then we have this sense of uh, we feel light, we feel relaxed, we don't feel we need to defend ourselves, uh, you know, prove ourselves, be better than the others, uh, be up, you know, have, tell everybody else where it's at, <laughs> which makes you feel tense and tight and rigid and driven. You feel relaxed, you feel open, you like it. And that sense of the enjoyment of the wholesome is what binds the whole of the, the Dhamma together. Yeah. As we manifest and live that out, that's what binds the community together. The lay community, the monastic community, and the two forming this, uh, this uh, assembly, which you we were talking about earlier today. <clears throat> so when it's like this, you start to get this sense of, well, enlightenment, awakening, Nibbana, What's that, you know? What's that? Suddenly, you know, your, your mind is relieved of a lot of the fantasies and the sense of I can't do this or it's really somewhere else different. You, you lose that sense of the, of the negative self-view that we carry. And there's a, you're setting up the foundations to be able to abide in the stillness, the composure, the clarity which opens the doors to the deathless. So this, the wholesome is the foundation that opens the doors because then in that we are establishing a mind state that is shaken off greed, the hatred, the restlessness and the delusion and then it's just a matter of deepening and steadying and sampling that is opening the door to the deathless. So offer this for your reflection tonight.